So last Wednesday we began chapter 32 in Exodus. Um, I think we're probably only going to do three or four more chapters. Like I said a couple times before, once we get into uh, 35, 36, 37, those chapters, it's basically just, and they built what he told them to build. They did it the, you know, just the way, and it's the measurements of the bronze altar again and all that kind of stuff. So that's just going to be the same lessons that we learned before. Um, this, this chapter, Exodus 32, I told you last week, is um, it's one of the more sobering events in Exodus. Somebody describe what happened in the first half of chapter 32, if you were here last week. That way, if you weren't here, we can, uh, uh, we can all get on the same page. What happened? Moses came down from the mountain. Moses came down from the mountain. Okay. They built an idol of gold, a golden calf. <coughs> Threw the Ten Commandments down and broke them. They had to drink that. They had to drink it. Remember that? He pulverized it, grinded it into powder, made them drink it. Yeah. I think there were some sharp pieces in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there very well could have been. Oh, you're correct. That's exactly what happened. Moses is on the mountain. The people came together. They didn't know what happened to Moses. Had been gone for at least up to 40 days. It says he was 40 days on the mountain. So it was leading up to that that they came to him and said, came to Aaron and said, look, we don't know what happened to this guy. Make us a golden calf. Make us a God that we can go and follow. Uh, Aaron did so and they worshipped it. Not only did they worship it, they started acting like pagans. Remember we talked about that? It says they sat down to eat and then they rose to play. And what did it mean when we said when he said they rose to play? What did we say last week? Evil practices. Very evil practices. They were it's a word that often is translated sexual immorality over and over again. So they were uh, acting like a bunch of pagan worshipers worshiping paganly, I guess if that's a word. So up on the mountain, before he came down, God told Moses all that was going on down at the bottom of the mountain. And what did Moses do? Up on the mountain, I know he came down, he did all that. What did he do on the mountain before he came down? He interceded for the people, and how did he do it? Did he say, them Israelites, they just don't know what they're doing. They're really nice people. What did he do? Huh? Yeah, he reminded God that his name, his glory... That he, he said, you, you don't want to destroy them because Egypt will say that you're, you brought them out there, made them a promise, you brought them out here, and you destroyed them. And he said, he called on God to remember his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so he interceded based on God's glory and God's name. Moses, like you said, goes down with the tablets, gets angry, breaks the tablet, tablets, destroys the idol, makes them drink the water with the gold. So the first thing that happens in this chapter, the first half of the chapter, and when Moses comes down and he discovers the sin that's going on in the camp, the first thing he does is the first thing we all must do, get rid of the idol. So he got rid of the idol. That has to happen before anything else happens. But that's not all that Moses does. And the rest of chapter 32 is going to show us what else he did. And what we see here is that, well, we see that sin always brings consequences. So I want to read verses 21. We ended up in 20 last week. 21 through 24, and then I'm just going to come back to 21, okay? 
It says, And Moses said to Aaron, he had just thrown the tablets, he just made them drink the water. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's kind of ridiculous. Kind of ridiculous. So let's go back before we deal with Aaron's ridiculous lie. After Moses destroys the idol, Moses makes a beeline to talk to Aaron. Why? He's in charge. He was the de facto leader while Moses was gone. But instead of faithfully leading the people to follow the Lord, Aaron had led the people into sin. And so in verse 21, Moses confronts Aaron and he puts the blame right where it belongs. He says, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin? So yes, the people sinned for sure, but the leader is responsible for how he leads. So why do you think that Moses phrases the question this way? What did they do to you? that you would lead them into this great sin. Why do you think he phrases it that way? He couldn't believe that they had to do it all the song. They had to be the one that did it. Yeah, he couldn't believe it. it, it it's, it's, almost like he's, it, it's almost like he's accusing, he's, he's accusing Aaron not just of sinning against God, but doing wrong to the people. They must have done something really bad for you to wrong them this way. What did they do to you that you would cause them, that you would lead them into this great sin? You know, they, what, did they, what did they do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? In my mind, you see, Aaron, we know, the, we, we know what we read last week. Aaron had feared for himself. You know, they came at him. And, and he feared them. He feared the people when they said, you make us gods. And, and he, he tried to please the people by giving them what they wanted. But in doing so, he was harming them. He was wronging them. He was sinning against God, but he was also wronging the people. So much so that Moses asked, what did they do to you that you, that you have done this to them? That you have brought this huge, this great sin upon him? I mean, so, honestly, you see here the picture that, that leadership has consequences. You know, if Aaron would have stood up when the people came and said, make us gods, and Aaron would have stood up and said, no, no, you're not going to do this, there's a good chance they would have killed Aaron. I mean, we don't know that for sure, but the way that they, it says, they surrounded him, they came at him, I mean, he was fearful for his life. There's a good chance he would have, they would have killed him, but he would have honored God and he would have been doing right by the people. You know, by, by giving in to their wishes, he had sinned against God, but he'd also sinned against them. The spiritual leader must be faithful to God, regardless of what the people threaten. And to lead the people into unfaithfulness, which is what Moses accuses Aaron of doing, and is what Aaron did, in fact, he's leading them straight into the judgment of God. I mean, he is wrong. And so Aaron is confronted about his sin. 
And the way Aaron answers really shows us a lot about our own hearts. So I want you to notice this. The first part of Aaron's answer is completely truthful. He accurately tells Moses what the people did and what happened. But he lies about what he did and what his role in this. He says, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know this people. They're set on evil for they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened. All that happened. And then he said, so I said, let those who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and a calf came out. So let's take this account of what the people did first. <laughs> what the people did, that's all true. That really happened. There's some that question, because technically the language is a little bit different. Earlier in, Gen in Exodus 32, he, he didn't say, let anyone who has gold take it off. He said, take off your gold and give it to me. It was a command. It wasn't just a, hey, well then, why don't y'all just, you know. So, but it could be that he's just, he's just rephrasing. That actually did happen. He said, let me have your gold earrings. They gave it to him and he, and he took it. That really happened. But even in his description of what the people did, boy, it sure sounds like Aaron's trying to blame them, doesn't it? You know these people. They're set on evil. I just did what they asked. So what Aaron's doing for the leader to do that, to say, look, I'm sorry, but all them people rushed me and they all said that and they all wanted this. So I just, you know, I, I, I just said we're going to take... For the leader to, to do that, to, to know that these people are set on evil and to do what they ask, he's only accusing himself. Doesn't matter what they said. Doesn't matter what they did. He was supposed to lead them in faithfulness. He was supposed to remind them of God's law, of God's covenant that they had just agreed to. And then if they sinned, it would be on them. So I remember an old story. This was a story told to me, so I wasn't... I don't know if it's absolutely true or not. Somebody told me the story, but there was an older preacher who was counseling a younger preacher in the early days of his ministry about what to say to his congregation as they were going through this very, very hard, difficult thing uh, that, that dealt with sin in the congregation and all this stuff. And, and this young preacher was asking for advice. And the older guy, basically, in a nutshell, he, he, he showed him from the Scripture what God called him to do in this situation. And what he needed to say to the people based on scripture in this situation. And in jest, just in, you know, just playing in, a, in whatever, in jest, this young preacher said, man, if I say that, they'll kill me. And without cracking a smile, the old preacher said, well, then go die. <laughs> no matter what Aaron, no matter what the people did to Aaron. No matter what the people did to Aaron, threatened Aaron with, no matter what happened to him, it was no excuse for him sinning against God and sinning against the role that God had placed him in. It doesn't matter what others do to us. It's no justification for sinning against God. Although Aaron was trying to shift the blame to the people and make it sound like it's all their fault, he only succeeded in shining a spotlight on his own sin in failing to lead them, in failing to stand up in the position God had placed him in. Now technically what he's saying is the truth there, but he is still exposing his sin in not being faithful to where God has placed him. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? 
leadership is hard. I can understand thinking of something at work today. And, you know, sometimes it's hard. When you know of what you're saying is going to make everyone angry because there's a part of you that wants to people please. Of course. So bad. Of course. And you don't want anybody angry at you. You don't want anybody railing against you, you know? Especially in today's social media world, you never know how far that railing will go. I, I understand it. But, but we're called to do what's right. We're called to do what's right because we answer to a higher authority. Um, and even if it means you go die, then you go die. Um, that's harsh, you know, that's, that's tough. Technically, what he's saying here is true, but then, in the middle of his story about how he's explaining himself to Moses, he takes such a left turn, and when it comes to time for him to answer for his own sin, he just flat out lied through his teeth. In verse 24, he says, "If anybody, I told him, if anybody has gold, let them take him off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came a calf. <laughs> now... <laughs> I don't know this for sure, but it just don't sound like Aaron's too bright. That's kind of a dumb excuse. That's kind of a dumb story. How, how was the idol actually made? Do you remember from last week? It explicitly says that he fashioned it with a tool. He made it with his own hands, and it says he used a tool to make the idol. So he is just flat out lying. We're told in verses 2 through 6 and 32 what happened. Uh, he crafted it. And so it certainly didn't pop out of the fire. But when it comes time for him to confess what he actually did, he lies. And he paints himself in a better light in order to minimize the sin that he actually did. He colors the story so it doesn't look so bad. This is what today we call spin. We call framing the narrative so I don't look so bad. But the Bible calls it lying. When we minimize or justify or downplay our own sin or our own involvement in sin, we're just lying. We're not explaining. We're not, well, now you need to hear my side of the story. You know, it's just a lie. It's just a flat out lie. You're bearing false witness. When we leave out details that don't show us, uh, we leave out details because if we tell those details, it, sh it doesn't show us in a favorable light. That is a lie. We're bearing false witness. And in the end, God already knew what happened. He told Moses on the mountain what happened before Moses ever came down. He already knew. He told Moses the whole story. And fast forward, we'll get to it today, the end of, uh, end of this chapter, verse 35, God calls the idol the calf that Aaron made. He already knows what happened. So what you see here really is just a futile attempt of a guilty sinner trying to frame the narrative so he doesn't look so bad. Do we still do that today? Give me some examples. When there, someone does something to hurt us, when then they lie about it, a lie is worse than the original act. Say that again. When, when a person does something to hurt us, the lie, they, if they lie about it, 
if they lie, lie about it. Lying is worse than the, the actual fact. She said, if somebody does something to hurt us and they lie about it, the lie is worse than what they actually did. Because they're not taking, I'm assuming they're not taking responsibility for their actions. There's no repentance for their actions. Is that right? But you, I think for anyone to lie with, to me that it's so obviously that it's a lie. Yeah. She said, I hate for anybody to lie to me when it's so obvious it's a lie. Yeah. Like politicians. Yeah, like politicians. <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of teenagers. <laughs> so yeah, we we me yeah, me and Dana we we know all about that. Like, yeah. We 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 had that issue not too long ago. Like, I know you're lying. I'm not lying. I know you're lying. I know that you're lying. I'm not lying. Turns out they were lying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What should have what should have Aaron done when Moses came? I mean, we know he shouldn't have made the calf, but after it's all said and done, Moses confronts him. Moses says, What'd they do to you to make you cause them to go into this great sin? What should have Aaron done? He should have confessed, owned up to it, asked for forgiveness. He should, he should have done all of those things. He should have repented of his sin and confessed it before God and sought the mercy of God. That is what we do. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, what do we do? We make Him a liar. Yeah, we make God a liar. Yeah, so... That is what we do. So there's not a person in this room who has not sinned, even after becoming a believer. First John was written to believers. So it's to believers. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us. We have the blood of Christ. So there is no need for us to hide our sin, justify our sin, minimize our sin. We can fully, whether we're talking about to our kids, to our spouses, to our friends, to our work colleagues, when we sin against them, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no reason for us not to say, I've sinned against you. I apologize. I'm repenting before the Lord. And I just want you to know that um, that I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, of what I've done and I'm not going to do it anymore or whatever. Whatever. So that's what Aaron should have done. But Aaron and the rest of Israel were now about to see the consequences of their sin. So, before we move on, anybody else have any thoughts? So you think that, I mean, to think of what after Aaron did, but God still allowed him to be the high priest. So he must have come to that point of confession and repentance, don't you think? Or otherwise he's allowed to continue in this position? Because it seems kind of crazy that he did this and then... Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. She, everybody hear that? She, yeah, she said Aaron was still allowed to be the high priest. In fact, God had told Moses on the mountain, Aaron is going to be the high priest. So maybe Aaron, had, maybe Aaron came to repentance, but I, I don't know that it's in the text anywhere. Yes? Um, along those lines, one of the things, and, and maybe this is the answer why Aaron was still the high priest, is... What I got out of the first part where Aaron, Aaron was very calculated and it was very premeditated, right? Instead of saying, all right, go get all of your gold stuff, he said, get your gold stuff from your wives and your sons 
aimed at us. He was very pointed about specificity on what he needed. We know he did the tool and everything. And we in our lives, I, I know I do this all the time, I'm very specific in my sin. And we lie to ourselves that it's sin that we're doing. And then when it comes back to get us, even when we are repentive to God, I think we put some jelly on our bread and smooth it over and say, well, you know, God, I'm sorry I did this, but I didn't realize going to this rated R movie would impact me this way. But you were calculated and going. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't realize doing this one thing was going to lead me to this. Please forgive me. But we were calculated and going, and maybe we need to take credence to this and pay attention to our calculations of our actions. Um, so you mean we justify our sin in some ways? Oh, yeah, we justify our sin to ourselves. I think even in our, our acts of asking for forgiveness, I know I'm guilty of it. In my acts of forgiveness and ask God, there have been times in my life where it doesn't, well, I'm going to ask forgiveness, Lord, and I really didn't mean it. Please keep me from this. But I meant it. Aaron meant it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And so maybe the reason why he's still a priest is because God is that just. God is that forgiving as he is in the New Testament. We see he's just as forgiving in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, he's the same God. So he is definitely, at, he's grace and mercy in the Old Testament as long as just as the New Testament. I don't really have a good answer as to why Aaron was allowed to stay the high priest or be the high priest because it really is not told. Yes? Well, throughout Scripture, there have been various people in positions that basically have messed up big time, but God gave them a second chance. Uh, yeah, all of them, pretty much, except Jesus. Yeah? Everybody hear that? He said... All through Scripture, the, the big names of Scripture, the heroes of the faith, they've all sinned. They've all messed up. They've all had lots of things in their lives that were egregious. You know, even premeditated. Abraham twice lied about his sister, you know, saying his wife is his sister. So he had premeditated. Yeah. The only thing I can think Moses did was he just literally came down or he sat down. Remember? Mm -hmm. In anger. Yep. Moses, he struck the rock twice. seems so bad. He disobeyed the Lord. He struck the rock twice instead of... He wasn't supposed to strike the rock at all, but he struck it, and that's why God didn't let him go into the promised land. Yes? Moses did murder an Egyptian. Murdered, he did murder an Egyptian. There's that too. Yes, yes. Yeah, there, there aren't any... There aren't any... I think... I don't know that... I don't know that... I don't know. What's what about Daniel? Daniel, I'm thinking about um, who's Benjamin's older brother? Man, I'm just going to blank. No, I mean, yeah, that is Benjamin's older brother, but his his full brother, Joseph. Joseph is presented without. He's not without sin, but he's presented. You don't see any really big. Oh no, Joseph did this. Other than when he was a kid, he was bragging about his dreams and gloating and all. But other than that, you see Joseph living just a righteous life. Doesn't mean he was sinless. He wasn't. Uh, Daniel, I think. I, I don't know. We, I don't know of anything. Anyway, regardless of whether it's there or not, you see some of the big names of the faith sinning. Uh, as well, but you also see, you also see God's 
grace and mercy. And he's going to show it here, but he's going to show grace and mercy in a way that you wouldn't expect here. So let me read 25 through 28, and let's see the mercy of the Lord. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, that means their enemies were making fun of them, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill your brother, his brother, his companion, his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Merciful. I don't say that in jest either. That was a mercy. So I want you to think about this because a lot of times we read this and we get the wrong picture of what's happening in our mind because we're not paying attention exactly to what the text says. So as we picture this in our mind, what we see is Moses come down from the mountain and he's angry and he throws the tablets and he's beating this idol to a pulp and he's yelling at Aaron and Israel is, they all just stop what they're doing and they look up at him like a kid caught in a cookie jar and, and they, we tend to think that the people just stopped everything and they stood there in shock. Moses is back. That's not what happened. As Moses is confronting Aaron, it says the people had broken loose. The NIV says they were running wild. They were still doing all of the things, all of the immorality, all of the pagan worship, all of the dancing, all of the reveling, all the party. They had, they had gone nuts. And Moses is talking to Aaron. They're going nuts all around him. The whole nation is just going crazy in this, in this wickedness and this idolatry. The term that is often used uh, for running wild or broken loose here in the Hebrew Bible is often used of nakedness. So I ain't going too much further than that. You know what kind of was going on. We talked a little bit about that week, last week. Their idolatry that led to their immorality, it had not stopped when Moses came back and threw the tablets and Moses confronted Aaron. They were still on the loose, running wild like pagans all around the camp. And even though Moses was back and he had destroyed the idol, Israel was dancing and they were reveling like wicked, immoral pagans still. So what is about to happen isn't just because, hey, Israel, you worship the golden calf. I mean, though that's bad enough, the fact is they were continuing on in their wickedness, in their immorality. The camp was in chaos. The nation was in chaos. And they were all doing all the things that they were doing. They were continuing in this. And unless there is some kind of discipline brought, unless someone is there to bring them to accountability, this whole nation at the foot of Mount Sinai is going to descend into base degeneracy right there. Things are out of control. And so Moses does what Aaron should have done. He stood at the gate of the camp and he called out to the people of Israel saying, if you're on the Lord's side, come to me. What does it mean to be on the Lord's side? What is He calling them to do? Repent. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to stop this wickedness and come, to, come back to the Lord. Come repent and come to the Lord. Now, as Moses, this is just my speculation, but at the moment Moses yelled this out, who's on the Lord's side? 
I don't know that Moses knew that anybody was going to respond. I mean, from the look of this camp, it didn't look like anybody was on the Lord's side. All the people. In this moment, Moses stands up and says, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. All of the people could have rushed Moses right there and killed him. But Moses was willing to stand for the Lord no matter what the cost, where Aaron was not. Moses had been in the presence of God. So for him, the people weren't something to be feared at all. He had been in a place where the fear of the Lord was there. And make sure you notice this, because what's, what's about to happen is harsh, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand as we read it. But when he calls to Israel to come to him, who, if you're on the Lord's side, come to me. This is their opportunity to receive the mercy of God. All you have to do is stop it and come to the Lord. All you have to do is stop it, repent, and come to the Lord. That's all you have to do. And all of this goes away. Well, it didn't go away, but we'll see that in a minute. So He is offering them mercy. Any of the people could come to the Lord's side in this moment. All they had to do was stop their revelry, leave their sin behind, stop all of this wicked stuff that's going on, and come to the Lord. You see this... this before the discipline actually takes place and we see what happens with the Levites, they are offered mercy. Just, just repent. Just repent and come to the Lord. It's the same principle given for the church in the New Testament. When members of the church run loose uh, in, in the same way you, it says so here. Or they live in unrepentant sin. They need to be confronted. They need to hear the command of God. But they also need to hear the plea for them to avail themselves of the mercy of God. It's not just a condemnation. It's not just a judgment. There is mercy that is offered. Come to the Lord's side. Leave that behind and come to the Lord. So here is Israel's opportunity. But who is it that responds? The Levites. Who is, what tribe is Moses from? The Levites. Why do you think only the Levites respond? I have no answer to this question. I'm just wondering. Why do you think it's just them? Huh? I think they would recognize it more. I, mean, I think everybody recognizes it, but the Levites, I mean, they're the ones who are constantly serving, right? Mm -hmm. In the temple, they're there to recognize the Lord's call. That very well could be. Everybody hear that? She said that Levites would be, would be ones more apt to recognize God's call. I thought about that, and that indeed is going to end up being true because Moses is going to commend them after this is all over and say, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. But remember the timeline of where we are in Exodus. How many people know at this point in time, at this moment, how many people know about the altar and the tabernacle and the robes and the high priest and who's the high priest? And How many people know? One. <laughs> Moses. Nobody else knows. Moses has just received that instruction for 40 days. So I think it's, I think it's just the providence of God that they, that they rallied to his side. It could be that they, he is a Levite, and so maybe there's some clan loyalty. I don't know. It, there, it doesn't tell us, so we don't know. But at the end of this, he does say, because of what you've done, because you obeyed the Lord, you're ordained for his service today. 
And that's what happens. This shocking, he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. That's a shocking turn of events. You might think, man, Moses is harsh. Moses is mean. But make sure you read the text. Who did the command come from? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The command is from God. The Levites were to execute the justice among the Israelites who were running, running wild. This was disciplinary judgment to restore order. Remember, please remember, the picture here is not everything is quietened down and everybody's back in their tent now and so God, and they send the Levites through killing everybody in their tents. That's not the picture. That's how, they were still running wild, engaging in an immorality and debauchery and idolatry and reverie. They were still running loose. So the Levites are called to go through the camp from gate to gate and execute those who are engaging in this wickedness and this out-of-control immorality. The Levites were tasked with bringing this discipline to stop the pagan display by executing anyone who was engaged in it. And they weren't to let the ties of friendship or family or companionship or any of that keep them from obeying God. Now, that seems, it might seem extreme, may even seem harsh, but this too is actually demonstrating God's mercy. Israel had made a blood covenant with God. They had agreed to keep His covenant, and they had broken it within 40 days, still standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so all of their lives, every single one of them, all of them were forfeit. God had the right to put every single one of them to death. And He would have been right and righteous to do so. The heavens would have glorified His name because of His righteousness. But only 3,000 were executed. Now that is a significant loss of life. Why didn't all of the Israelites die? As they were going through the camp, killing anybody engaged with this, why do you think it was only 3,000 that died? Well, she said the rest of them didn't participate. I don't think I don't think that's true because it said all of the people in the first part. What I think, and this is speculation, the text doesn't tell us us this either. So feel free, we can disagree, we can discuss it, whatever. What I think is going on here is that the people are just in madness. They're just doing their thing. They're just running. It says broken loose. They're running wild. They're doing all of their thing. And now, in the midst of their running wild, they see these guys with swords show up and they kill that guy over there. And then they kill that guy over there. And then they kill that guy over there. What am I going to do? Oh, hold on. Yeah. That's what I think. I can't prove it from Scripture, and I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But I think that most of the people, when they saw the consequences of the sin that God was bringing upon them, they, they stopped their debauchery. and their, The party came to a grinding halt. And they stopped. And when they stopped, they were spared. God was bringing discipline upon His people in order to show them the consequences of their sin. 
to shock them into repentance. Now, it would stink if you were one of the 3,000, but what you received if you were one of the 3,000 was not unjust. It was righteous. It was justice. So you got 3,000 that died. You got all of the innumerable rest of them, a million or how many ever, that didn't. In this hand, you've got some who received justice and God's right to bring it. And in this hand, you've got some who've received mercy. And so God was bringing discipline upon His people. Up on the mountain, God had already decided and already told Moses, I'm not going to destroy Israel. Because of the promise of Abraham. Because of the promise to Isaac. But that doesn't mean that their sin could go on unchecked. Doesn't mean that their sin could go on without discipline. It didn't mean that they could, you know, the idol's gone. The idol's destroyed and they're still doing all this stuff. It doesn't mean that they could continue on in this sin without consequence, without discipline, without something to bring them back. And this is a mercy of God that Moses, under God's command, through these men, brought discipline through the camp that brought the vast majority of Israel back to their senses and brought them back, at least outwardly, back to God. With me? Yeah. Okay. So God is going to confront the principles. God's going to confront the sin of His people. He will confront the sin of His people. He will not let His child run off into unrepentant sin without conviction, discipline, chastisement. You know, I think Adrian Rogers had a sermon one time. It was really good. I haven't examined the text, so I don't know. But it was it was the text about uh, the sin unto death in First John, and I, I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't studied his analysis of it. But the way that he presented it was, you know, the kind the kind of steps of discipline God brings to His children, like. I don't remember what they were either. Like one is conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit will convict your heart. And if you keep on and reject that, you'll sear your conscience. And your conscience will be seared. God will send you a, a godly person into your life to, to rebuke you of that sin like Nathan did to David. And then, and then after that, God will, you know, whatever. All the way down to if you just refuse to obey the Lord, God will take you out. Just bring you on to heaven. You know, you won't lose your salvation, but He'll just bring you on to heaven. Uh, I, and so, you know, I don't know. I, I haven't studied that text, but it is a pretty powerful sermon for sure. God's going to confront the sin of His people. When it comes to idolatry and immorality, there is no compromise. There is no compromise. There's no justification. There's no minimization of the sin. There's no excuse. There's no any of that. There is no compromise. As Moses cried out to Israel, you're either on the Lord's side or you're not on the Lord's side. And Moses even, like I said before, commends the Levites for what they did. Moses said to the Levites, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Right now the Levites don't know that they're the priestly tribe yet. God told Moses that up on the mountain. He hadn't told them yet. He's going to tell them, but he hadn't told them that. And so all the Levites came to the Lord's side. Moses takes that as... Um, proof positive and providence that these are these are to be the servants of the Lord. These are be, to be the priestly class. God is ordaining them for service. Um, questions, comments? And remember, listen, the Levites here, this is just me speculating to. This is not in the text, so feel free to discuss and push back, whatever. 
the Levites weren't bloodthirsty killers who just enjoyed this great task that they got to. They came to Moses because they desired to be faithful to the Lord. Who's on the Lord's side? They came. They said, we want to be on the Lord's side. Moses commends them as they're, I mean, they're probably in shock, wouldn't you be? If, you, if you're killing your neighbors and you're, you're executing your brothers and you're, you know, all of these Israelites, some of, you know, some of whom you've grown up with, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. They're probably in mourning because of all this. And, and God, uh, Moses shares with them, you know, what God told him up on the mountain. You're, you're, you've been ordained as servants to the Lord. At the expense of your obedience, you've obeyed Christ. You obeyed the Lord today, and God, God's going to bless you for it. You with me? Yeah. So now, now is when the dust settles. So the people were running wild. The Levites come in at Moses' command from God, and they brought discipline as. Many, 3,000 were executed and it brought the rest back to discipline. Now is when the dust settles. And the next day it says, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. Moses had dealt with the sin in the camp. He had dealt with the sin. He had stopped the party. He had brought them all, you know, at least the ones that weren't executed. He brought them at least outwardly back to the Lord. We know their hearts weren't there yet. Um, those who continued in that activity were punished. Aaron was rebuked. Uh, and the people now had, you know, settled down and they were at least outwardly resolved to follow the Lord again. But although they'd stopped the party, they'd still sinned against God. And the 3,000 that died did not atone for their sin. And so Moses knew, even now, after it's all said and done, after it's all over, there's still a holy God up there on that mountain. There's still a holy God of justice. He's still up there. He's a consuming fire. And Moses had learned over the last 40 days, you know, God had told him about the tabernacle and the altars and the different kind of sacrifices and all the things. That he, Moses had learned sin requires atonement. That's what all the stuff was for. The tabernacle, the altars, the sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. So Moses says, I'm going to go back up to the Lord. And here you see someone do something that no one has ever done yet in the history of the Bible. Now remember that last clause in 20 and 30. What's Moses going for? Perhaps I can make atonement for you. It's very important. Remember that. Because in 31 and 32, he goes back up to God. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, and this is phrased strangely in English, it says, If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses was again back on the mountain. Moses was again asking for mercy for the people, asking for forgiveness for the people for their sin, their immorality and their idolatry. And as Moses asked for mercy for the people, he says, it's phrased really weird in English here, but he basically he's saying, if you won't forgive them, then kill me and cast me away from your presence forever. Basically is what he's saying. Now remember, the last time he was up here, God offered to destroy all of them and make a nation out of you. 
I'm going to kill all of them and I'll make a nation out of you, Moses. And here Moses offers himself as the mediator between God and man to die for his people and to be cast away from the presence of God for his people. Moses stands between God and the people and he is linking his own future, his life, his eternity with that of the people. He says, if they can't be forgiven, then destroy me instead. Basically, cast me away. Blot my name out of your book. He's interceding for the people in a way that no one had ever done before. He's offering himself as a sacrifice to atone for their sin that they might live. Now, the way it's phrased, it sounds kind of like he's saying, well, just kill me along with them. You know, kill us all. Make sure you don't spare me if you're going to kill everybody. Just kill us all. But remember what he said when he said, why I'm going back up on the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That's what's happening here. He's saying, he's saying, listen, if you will forgive them, fine, forgive them. But if you won't forgive them, you blot me out of your book. You take me out of the, your book. The book of life is what he's talking about. You take me, you cast me from your presence. He's offering himself as a sacrifice, but God doesn't accept it. 35, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Why doesn't God accept Moses' sacrifice for their sin? Ding, ding. He's not sinless. If he were to offer his own life, whose sin would he have to pay for? His own. His own. He's not sinless. And that leads us to? Jesus. Jesus, who is sinless. Absolutely. Absolutely. So God says, no, no, that's not going to happen. He says, in fact, whoever sinned against me, that's the one I'm going to blot out of my book. Now, this language is important. This blotting out of... First of all, Moses... It's not that Moses was sinless, but Moses hadn't sinned in this episode. He hadn't worshipped the golden calf. He hadn't allowed them to do the golden calf. He wasn't part of the revelry, part of the immorality, part of all the stuff. So God says, no, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book. For this sin, this sin is not on your account. It's on their account. And he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot them out of my book. Now, when you understand what this means, you understand what it means when it's quoted to us in the book of Revelation. You know where that's at? Revelation 3.5, one of the most misunderstood verses and misused verses, where he says in Revelation 3 to, in the letter, he says, to the one who conquers, notice the language, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus talking. Now a lot of people take that verse and say, See, it's possible to lose your salvation. Possible to get blotted out because God says I will... That's not... It's a quote. It's a quote from Moses. Why wasn't Moses blotted out of God's book? There was no sin. Oh, this sin wasn't on Moses' account. Why is this person in Revelation 3.5, the overcomer, the one who conquers, why is his name never to be blotted out? He's clothed in the white garments. You see it? So the, the, the idea is not, well, some people must be blotted out of the book because it says I won't blot. No, he's given you the assurance that because you're clothed in white garments, there's no sin on your account. And he's using the picture that he gave Moses on the mountain. 
It's a reference to what God told him. We're clothed in his righteousness. God told Moses, I'm not blotting out, blotting out your name. I'll blot out those who sin, uh, those with this sin on their account. So even this, even the Sinai, even the golden calf incident, even all this points us to Jesus, the mediator who removes the sin off of our account. And so there's never, there's, there's not even a possibility that our name could be blotted out of the book of life because we are clothed in the white garments and the sin is not on our account. Y'all with me? Yeah. Okay, last verse we'll look at. Last two verses. But he tells Moses, Now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. <laughs> you know that didn't pop out no fire, boy. God says, I'm not going to destroy them. I'm not going to destroy them because I promised I wouldn't. I promised Abraham. I promised Isaac. I promised Jacob. I promised you when you were back up on the mountain here, Moses, that I wouldn't destroy them. I, in fact, I'm going to lead you to the land that I promised to lead you to. He said, I'm going to go with you. The angel shall go before you. You go down and you lead the people to where I've promised to bring them. He says, but there's coming a day when I will bring discipline for the sin that they've committed. And indeed it happens a plague comes and God disciplines His people for their sin. Now we're not given any information about this plague and there's a debate raging in academia in a lot of circles about what actually happened in this plague. So from the text in Exodus, we're not told that anybody dies in the plague. So there are some that say this is just a plague, a sickness plague, a discipline, nobody died. However, in 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 8, it says this, and he is specifically referring to the golden calf incident. He says, Now these things took place as an example for us that we might desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's our incident. That's a quote from our text. And then it seems like to me he's describing rose up to play. He says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So the, the debate comes in because there's another incident in Numbers 25 where um, there is some sexual immorality that's going on. And one of the Israelites uh, runs out and throws a spear and, and skewers both of them and is commended. And God sends a plague that kills 24,000 people. It's 24,000 in numbers. And I think it's, it may be Aaron. It might be Eleazar. I'm not remembering off the top of my head. But they run out into the crowd with the incense and the plague stops where the incense is. Uh, some say that Paul is kind of telescoping events. And indeed, in the, next, the very next section in 1 Corinthians 10, he starts talking about the serpent raised up in the wilderness, the bronze serpent. So there's a question as to whether 23,000 people actually died in the plague here at Mount Sinai or whether Paul is talking about the plague that happened in Numbers chapter 25. Anybody have any strong feelings? Yeah, I, I don't know either. I don't know either. Um, but he does say that I will visit, when I visit them, I will visit my sin upon them or their sin upon them. And the very next line is God sent a plague. 
So through the sections of this second half of 32, I think the overarching theme is a verse that you do find in Numbers that says, you be sure that your sin will find you out. God disciplines the sin of His children. You see that discipline in Moses coming down the mountain and destroying the idol, making them drink it. You see that discipline in the fact that they don't stop the revelry. They keep on. It says they broke loose and they were doing all of this even with Moses in the camp. And so God disciplined them by sending the Levites through the camp, killing those who would not repent, who would not stop this debauchery. And then in the final analysis, he goes back up to the Lord in order to make atonement. God rejects his, his substitution for them because he himself is not sinless but yet says I'm going to keep my promise but I am going to discipline my people for the sin that they've committed and sends a plague upon them the consequences of sin are real <clears throat> even for the believer we um, we uh, we are saved by the grace of God we're saved by Jesus Christ and all of our sin is forgiven and washed under the blood but God loves his children and he will not let them walk in unrighteousness without the Holy Spirit's conviction, without the Holy Spirit's moving, without uh, the body of Christ coming and bringing um, acknowledgement of that sin the way Nathan did to David. Uh, and so we can be sure that God is a God uh, of mercy and grace. God is a God of love, but He is still, even in the New Testament, He's still a holy God. Amen. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? Did Aaron ever separate I don't anybody recall if Aaron ever suffered any consequences for this I know Aaron is disciplined when he and Miriam try to yeah. try to take over I don't know I'd have to look but not in this passage and I don't know I haven't I haven't looked closely at what comes next Maybe so. Maybe so. I don't know that that's the case because Moses doesn't intercede just for his brother. He intercedes for all the people. He says, you forgive them. And if not, blot me out of your book. And um, Moses, I mean, yeah, I got an answer to your question. Whoever asked that question. Aaron was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. All the Levites came to the Lord's side. So there you go. I think he repented. What tribe was Joshua? I don't know. <laughs> Anybody know what tribe Joshua is from? Yeah. Moses and Aaron were brothers, so that makes Aaron a Levite. All the Levites came to the Lord's side. Yeah. Yes. So if all the Levites I think brothers there is not fellow Levites, but fellow Israelites. Yeah. Your brothers, your neighbors, your sons. Any other? In these last verses, it's really amazing to hear the conversation between God and Moses. You can tell there's an established relationship and that he would have that 
burden for the people that God also has for his creation. Even though he is a just and a holy God and he has to have justice, he doesn't want any of us to perish. And Moses knows that and he spoke sure. face to face. So for him to have that conversation with him and just just like Jesus goes before God for us, it's just amazing. Yeah, and yeah. So absolutely. Moses was sure willing to give his life. He sure was if it would if it would save his people. Yeah. And make sure this is a very harsh it's a very harsh and a lot of you know a lot of people especially people that disbelieve or want to disprove the Bible will use this passage this this chapter as a way to show how terrible God is or how harsh he is. this is God's mercy because he, he would have been justice, true, perfect, absolute justice means everybody dies. Yeah. Means everybody's wiped off the planet and you die and it's all good. You, we made the covenant not just a few chapters ago or five or six chapters ago, 40 days at the Mount Sinai. You hadn't moved yet. We hadn't sent you nowhere. You're still at the mountain that trembled with thunder and lightning. You're still at the mountain where you heard my voice and you agreed to keep covenant with me and you're breaking the covenant. Your life is forfeit. Justice would mean everybody dies. But what we see here is just mercy. And the Levites going through killing the 3,000 was to bring the others back to their senses. To bring them out of this, this wickedness that had overtaken them. And that they would continue to uh, at least outwardly follow the Lord. Anything else? Alright, let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for your discipline. God, you tell us that you discipline those that you love. And that every son that is loved is chastised. God, we thank you for that. Lord, when we're children, we, we don't like the chastisement and the discipline of our parents. But God, as we mature, we know that that discipline is for our good. It's for our growth. It's for our, um, it's for our benefit. So God, we can only see you as the perfect Father. God, disciplining us for good. We know that all things are working for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So God, we thank you for that. Though it doesn't seem fun at the time. God, we know that it is good for us. So God, you continue to continue to purge the sin from among us, the sin that still permeates our hearts. Thank you for forgiving all of the sin that is in us through Jesus Christ. And God, help us to continue to walk in a, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And as we talk about walking worthy of the gospel and walking in discipleship and growing in discipleship and being faithful in the mission over the next several Sundays, God, we just pray that you would lead us to see how it applies in our own hearts and that you would show us what it looks like for us individually and as a church to be faithful. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.